You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. For me, because something needs to pay for mice for my corn snake. Uh, I'm Brandon Grilly. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca, and this is episode 87, Building Up Hope. Listeners, and we are so excited to have another special guest with us this week. Brandon, thank you so much for joining us. Um, please introduce yourself and your work to our listeners. All right, thanks. Uh, yeah, so I'm Brandon Crilly. Uh, I'm an Ottawa-based uh, writer of science fiction and fantasy um, and wear many hats, probably too many hats, um, podcasting and uh, reviewing and uh, organizing a con here in Ottawa and uh helping to organize Bag of Giving, this Twitch series, which is where I met both Cass and Marshall, which is awesome. Um, and uh, but the big thing right now um, is uh, my uh, novel Catalyst, uh, which is my debut fantasy novel with Atlas Arts, um, which uh, by the time this comes out will have come out yesterday, I think, um, on October the 11th, which is pretty cool. Uh, I, can, I can go into uh, more about the novel if you want, but that's, that's the big thing for me right now. Go more into the novel. Please do. I will do that. Because our listeners will want to know, and thus and thus they'll want to buy it. I mean, I hope so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so Catalyst is sort of like a, a getting the band back together um, fantasy adventure. Um, centers on three estranged uh, friends. One is a, a street magician. One is um, a, a heretic from a religious order who thinks that he's in the right. Um, and one is uh, an ex-soldier. Uh, and they haven't seen each other in something like 16 years, but they're thrown back together uh, to investigate this uh, secret history of um, the world that they're on, um, which is uh, it's this world that, kind of, you know, long story short, um, was fractured at like its core at uh, some point several centuries previous and like was about to literally explode, um, but then was saved um, and encased in a bubble by uh, what are essentially squid gods. Um, like in orbit. Um, so yeah, the castle got really excited. <laughs> that's just an awesome concept. I'm just I'm picturing them. That's that's what. Why, why, in right. my head, it was very. It's like a very cute cartoon, which is probably not accurate. But. I mean, that's it was funny when we were talking to the cover artist, and I was like, describe for me these these squid gods, and I was like, well, you've seen Galaxy Quest, right? And I sent him a photo <laughs> of the Thermians from Galaxy Quest. I was like, take that, but not as cute. <laughs> Um, oh. And and honestly, yeah, the cover is extraordinary. This does not help the listeners, but but this is this is what the the artist envisioned. L- uh, listeners, it's yeah, it's very squidish. It's very squidish, very squidish. It's, it's kind of very Vorlon from from Babylon Five too. When, oh, once it they're, is too. Once they're in their pure form, which you almost never see at the show, but still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. Well, yeah. So so yeah. So squid gods in orbit, uh, keeping the planet encased in a bubble that keeps it intact. Um, and but there's all sorts of, of stuff to do with these gods and, and other stuff on the planet that uh, is uncovered in the book. Um, and uh, basically, in order to survive um, in this bubble, um, the various civilizations on this this planet have had to, you know, develop more sustainable practices. So things like um, you know wind power and geothermal power and responsible agriculture and universal universal basic income and stuff because otherwise even even with the protection like resources are scarce so um, that's where I, I tried to inject um, a fair bit of 
whole punk and climate fiction and solar punky sort of stuff into what is what is essentially supposed to be a fantasy book. But that's really cool. Plus, like the whole concept of like squid gods encasing them in a bubble and saving them, it feels very sort of like benevolent Lovecraftian. Yeah. <laughs> Like, like, they, yeah, they, they, it's funny, like, they, they're supposed to come across as very benevolent, but, um, it, like, the society that these, these people find themselves in is very obviously a theocracy. Like, it's like, don't piss off the squid gods, because if they get too pissed off, maybe the bubble goes away. And, and there's, so there's that sort of tension throughout the book that, like, we don't want to, don't step out of line. It's, they, they did a good thing, but we, they're, they're still beyond our ken, and maybe... <laughs> right? That's it. Let's let's not push it. Like I get that that I like it. I love that a lot. I am and I'm fascinated. Do do the squid gods communicate with the people of the planet at all or are they enigmatic entities that you have to like guess and people can be like, "Oh, well I think the squid god believes this" and and try to get the people to believe it. It's a little bit of both. Like the the magic system that exists on the world like the there there are people who can I call it channeling, but people who can basically like request stuff from from these gods and it's like this sort of like combination of mental focus and magic where it's like you know this is what i need and and if you approve it then you'll give me x um because it's a really small like you know catch me before i guy slipped and fell off this cliff or something huge like we need a bridge right here um and so in that sense there's a little bit of communication with the gods but it's it, you know, but it's it's very like um feeling and almost like empathy based like there's no real like you're not having a conversation with them um and so the the religion that is formed um, around these gods, there's a lot. There's a lot of various interpretations of each of them, um, and there are some that are approved, and there are some that are not so approved. Um, and it's like, don't you know? We don't want to follow the ones that aren't approved because, again, we might piss them off. So, um, so they are still very <laughs> nebulous. But yeah, those squid god schisms could be dangerous. It could, right? <laughs> I just wanted to say squid god schism. <laughs> Which can be challenging. Say that How phrase. Often it's a great we're phrase. Say squid gods as we go through. <laughs> <laughs> well, that. It's all just sounds so wonderful and so delightful. And this is what we've invited you to join us to talk about is thinking about things like climate fiction and solar punk, these sort of, it's a combination like aesthetic, outlook, viewpoint, paradigm, and how we fit that into our world building. So I would love to start off for our listeners who may not be familiar with some of these terms. How do you define what is cli-fi, climate fiction? And how is it distinguished from things like solar punk, hope punk? Where are the overlaps for you as as a writer as you've thought about it? I'm actually curious what you folks think. Like, like and, and part of it will feed into my answer. Like, like when when someone says solar punk, what's the first thing that comes to mind for either of you? See, all of these terms are very. This this has been like our buzz phrase for for the season, which is which is world building by aesthetic. That's our accidental theme this year, apparently. Nice. All of them sort of. It's less about, it's like specifically X, specifically Y, and all of them are more just like about the vibes that it puts off. Because like, solarpunk, even though the term invites it a sense of technology, that like advanced but ecologically friendly technology, still like the vibe I get is usually like more like biotech, everything very green. Similar with Hope Punk, and I think that this is part of why this is a phrase that like makes some people just go crazy mad, <laughs> is because you can't like nail like if you say steampunk, if you say diesel punk, if you say like Tesla punk, that creates an immediate like aesthetic image in your brain, which is the 
sort of the purpose of those things. But, like, Hope Punk doesn't really have a visual pop to it. It yeah. has a vibe pop to it, mm-hmm. which is yeah. something completely different. And so, yeah, that, it's, it's challenging because they evoke more how the book's going to be emotionally, but not necessarily what you can expect in terms of, like, imagery or even or technology or anything like that and i think especially hope punk as opposed to the other two the other two for me at least they do they have that technology pop and so to me they they tend to lean into the science fantasy realm into that overlap of things although there's no reason why they should have to i think you you could certainly write a fantasy world that was solar punk but low tech it's just not what I've usually seen. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the image that pops into my head is one of those, you know, the green buildings with, it's, you know, it's all plants on the outside and things like that is is what I see in my head when it comes to solar punk. But Isn't then... low-tech solar punk essentially the Flintstones? <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> Whoa. I, I may have broken chaos. <laughs> you may have broken me. I was going to say photosynthesis is just, that's essentially low-tech solar punk. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so I feel like those, those things, those two terms have a little more implication attached to them, which may or may not be accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas hope punk is, I think, really emotional. I think you can have a hope punk set more easily in like any other kind of aesthetic tech level mm-hmm. thing like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That- so now that we've rambled... <laughs> <laughs> no, what are I, your answers, person who's actually written it? Right, yeah, 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 right, me. Well, the interesting <laughs> thing is, like, when I talk to other other authors, like other solar punk authors and even other climate fiction authors, a lot of people have different answers for it, which is part of the reason why, why I asked both of you, because, like, when Hope Punk was first introduced to me as a concept, it was that, um, like, this idea, because, like, the, the punk suffix always threw me, because, like, if you go back to, like, everybody always brings up cyberpunk and whenever, and whenever punk comes up, and, and but, like, People say, well, where, where's the edginess? Like, what's the punk of hope punk? And 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 it was explained to me as this idea that, like, we're we're in a a place now where to be optimistic is almost to be rebellious, because to be pessimistic is kind of the norm, right? And so that so that to me is like like cast like you're saying like hope punk can kind of apply to any broader genre because you can apply that optimism um, wherever. But then like nobody seems to be able to agree on at least to my my impression of talking to people nobody seems to be able to agree on on exactly what solar punk is i think because it's too new as a as a, as a concept mm. that people have been talking about like um even though apparently like it goes back to um 2008 or something is the first or probably even earlier than that in terms of like it showing up officially in genre stuff but yeah it's, it's always presented to me as um or like most often it's presented to me as something very exclusively science fiction but then there's a bunch of works that I think are solar punky that have nothing to do with science fiction. And, and but then some people like would would take something that is, say, you know, solar punk fantasy and say, well, that's, you know, because it's fantasy, it's not solar punk. It's just fantasy or it's science fantasy. Um, and, and then we end up arguing in fisticuffs and all that to say, like, I, like uh, if I were to say this is what solar punk is, there'd be a half dozen people that would disagree with me. And, and rightfully so, because I think it's something that we haven't quite nailed down yet. I wonder if at least part of that stems from there's been a number of like solar punk works, but there hasn't really been tentpole defining work that mm-hmm. somebody like there there is no there is no neuromancer 
of the mm-hmm. solar punk. Mm-hmm. And it, it then there where is the thing to compare it to sort mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. concept and yeah, totally. And I wonder like I wonder if um I can't remember the name of the series, um, or I think it's just Monk and Robot, but uh, Becky Chambers is a psalm for the Wild Built. Um, when that when Tor published that, I think the second one is out now, but, but when the first one came out, um, it says right in the description that it's it's solar punk, and and it's and the whole. But I don't know if you've read it, but Psalm for the Wild Built, it, like the entire story is you have this this monk who goes around serving tea, and listening to people's problems, and is just like like a roaming therapy monk. Who like goes from town to town in a, in a wheeled cart, and it, it is exactly as delightful as it sounds, but it's in this world that is very low tech. But there used to be like robots all over the place, and 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 then at some point the robots just up and left because they were like, we're gonna go do other stuff, and they just like, there's no, it's not Terminator Judgment Day, they just kind of wander off and everything's fine. Um, and then this monk comes across a robot who has now come back to see what humanity's been up to in the, however long it's been. And it's just the two of them wandering around talking to each other, and it isn't—it's—it's it's very like, very character focused and very like I think fits like kind of quiet fantasy sort of um, uh, setup as well. And to me, is but to me wouldn't fit what I would have thought Solar Punk is a few years ago because it—it's it, very quiet and lovely. But I'm wondering if that's going to be the tenfold that people end up uh, referring to, and if they do, I think that they're well within their rights because it's a fabulous book. Right, well, I've just added it to my library hold list because this is the third time in like a week that I've heard it mentioned. So that must, that's the sign. No way. That's that the universe telling you, Cass. It's, it is. <laughs> Time to read it. Time to read it. Though that, that does give me that sort of, you know, vibe check sense that I think one of the things that Solarpunk like brings up in my brain that may or may not necessarily be accurate is the idea of a society that was high tech and is now low tech again but not in an apocalyptic way. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of that, that anti-apocalypse concept, mm-hmm. I think. The is choice part of... to roll back yeah. as opposed to a cataclysm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, I think that that's, that's really tough for us to envision, right? Because like, this idea... Or even post, post-apocalypse. Yeah, exactly. Like I've even had like uh, uh, some of the, the early reviews that have come in for Catalyst, people have said, oh, it, it's post-apocalyptic, or, and some even said it's dystopian. And I read that I was like, I, I, I don't, I don't, it, what, is it, is it, <laughs> shit, did I read a dystopia? Like, and I'm looking back. I feel like people have forgotten what that word means. <laughs> I think, yeah, people think... just gotta throw it out for, for anything, right? But, um, but yeah, like, it, like, if it's post, 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 post apocalyptic, but still based on a cataclysm, then yeah, to me, that, that's not necessarily solar punk. No. And maybe that's a lot of where, like, the, the punk part does come in because that choice to do something different unexpected mm-hmm. not in the traditional progression and i'm using that term with a lot of sarcasm of technology like deliberately going counter to that mm-hmm. is where you get the punk aspect yeah exactly and, and part of the reason why like recently I've, I've tried to start looking for fantasy that includes even just like not necessarily like explicitly solar punk but, but includes things like environmentalism and sustainability and, and stuff in their world building um is because like it seems like the default in a lot of fantasy worlds is whenever that world advances technologically it, it immediately becomes the industrial revolution no matter what like like and i was like uh, joe abercrombie's um the the first law world um like the most recent trilogy is age of madness you know you jump in and, and he's, he's moved to the the timeline up like 20 years or something um and it's basically you know charles darwin victorian london but in but in his world and i remember reading it and i was like 
dude, you didn't have to. You don't have to, like, have coal mines and child labor. and stuff. Like, you, don't, you don't have to go that way, man. But everybody does. <laughs> like, it's inevitable. And, and so that's part of the reason why I think, like, you know, I would love to see more solar park fantasy world building, and, and then I can get off my soapbox. <laughs> that does bring to mind the guy who wrote guns germs and steel has another book called collapse oh yes which is which is about how civil some civilizations just like base most of the time it's they use up all their resources around them and the civilization collapses because oops we cut down all the trees on our island that was an error (laughs) (laughs) did not think that through Oh, yeah, I haven't read that, but I, I have read things about theories like that going back to, like, the collapse of the first Mesopotamian civilizations mm-hmm. and, and there being some big climate change there. And, and there's speculation that's like, was that one human caused, even though we didn't have industrialization yet? But did they over farm to the point where it did that? Um, there's some theories about that around the Bronze Age collapse as well. So once again, you don't necessarily need these high levels of tech to create that kind of problem but also perhaps to imagine a different solution and a different way that a society could have chosen to progress mm-hmm. without doing that to themselves yeah or, or at least catching it soon enough right like catching it up where like, we see where this is going let's maybe you know redirect like we go back to the 1960s and we take it <laughs> not, not to get too real but. though within that it also talks about civilizations that did be like oh hey Here's a problem. Let's let's get a solution. I think both in like medieval Germany and medieval mm. Japan, they did things where it's like, hey, we need to keep cutting down wood. This forest will end eventually. So let's, you know, let and it takes a good 20 years to grow a tree. So therefore, we should start planning now to have plenty of trees in 20 years because we're going to be cutting down all these trees now and doing that in a sustainable fashion to yeah. keep themselves from from cutting down all the trees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a, what a concept. <laughs> <laughs> when it is an interesting concept because it it speaks to a sort of stability in a region. If you can make plans on that kind of scale, you must have a lot of faith that you know the the raiders from over the mountain aren't going to come and wipe everything out. And so it it sort of informs a lot about the people and the trust they have in in their society, in their culture, in their um, government, maybe, but at least in their own security. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, because if, if you don't have that stability, like if you're constantly worried about, like, yeah, like you said, like raiders, or, you know, we don't feel like our agriculture is stable enough here, or, you know, like depending on what other technology level you're at in various respects, um, then yeah, it might not be top of your mind to think that far ahead. Um, and justifiably so. I've been on a big Saxon kick lately, and let me tell you, like, <laughs> 9th, 10th century England was not a place people planned <laughs> very far in advance. So it's like, man, if it's not the fucking Danes, it's the Welsh, or it's the Frisians, there's just always somebody coming through, so I'm going to plan for this winter, <laughs> and that's going to have to be good enough, because I might be dead by spring anyway. Amazing. Like how my Saxons have... Rockingham County accents, apparently. <laughs> Any, anything after May is is gravy. <laughs> Here's a moment where we get into sort of a choose versus presume sort of concept that we, we love to talk about here of, like, is being ecologically aware, like, this is not actually a new thing so much, but people, 
seem to think it's a new thing. So, like, what is that level of ecological consciousness that a fantasy society could and maybe should have? I mean... Mm. And probably in an earlier technology, there is more awareness than there necessarily is. Like, we have a tendency to, like, see things through our own late 20th century or early 21st century Western world lens where, like, the idea of, like, oh, you know, when they slaughter an animal, they use every bit. That's so weird. But, like, every part of the world, that's what they did because, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not going to waste anything. You know, if, if if you could eat it, if you could get any calories out of it, you were going to. And if anything you couldn't get calories out of, you would find some other use for it. And so... I think on the same level, that sort of awareness of staying within the balance of things and maybe, you know, and can that be applied on a community level, on a national level? Mm-hmm. Like, does does your fantasy world have that sort of capacity? And then when you add things like, you know, magic or telepathy or what have you, or you know, the ability to talk to plants and animals does that mm-hmm. does that open that up in a completely different way yeah 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 no i like that like when you're talking about like ecological consciousness like i think that's where um my impression is that's where a lot of people like it, it's about choice like people run up against that almost like branch in the path in terms of how they want to do the world building of why would these people be like this society to be ecologically conscious you know when mo like when we think that most societies aren't even though like marshall like you said like that's not true, historically speaking, right? Like, but like, I think there's there's this impulse to to be like, you know, I have to come up with some sort of very very explicit, very specific reason why this ecological consciousness exists. When I don't think that's always required. Like, you can have like like I hate to be the guy who's using using example for my own work again. I hate being that guy. But um, in a like this trunked novel from uh, before Catalyst where it's just this passing reference to um, this city that was built near this kind of massive old growth forest and instead of clearing the trees they looked at the land that was there and they were like okay what can we build where can we build it without disrupting anything and that was a choice and it wasn't for any you know huge philosophical reason or anything it was just this is the choice that they made full stop so I think you can can feed that in um, without needing to come up with some big complex reason for it like just like for, like for me from the standpoint of I want to see this more in fantasy so I'll put it in and I think if it's part of a larger aesthetic like if we're going to think of solar punk or whole punk or, or even climate fiction as an aesthetic if it's part of that broader aesthetic it's not going to feel out of place it's going to feel very natural um, compared to everything else that's in there if that makes sense I am, I am currently working on, on one of my side projects where trees and magic being based through the trees is so fundamental to everything and then using that in like just every bit of the language and to an extent you know to an extent it is it is kind of environmental now that i think about it because part of the whole big idea is that there were all these trees that the trees are the source of magic and Mm. and then this one culture is like, well, we can cut these down and make them into walls and into, into wands, and into, and then like, oh, we cut down all the trees. <laughs> this may have been an error. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. That Just, sounds very good. Did you take that from the Lorax? I did not take that from the Lorax. No, <laughs> I just 
I, I just I mostly I like the a I like the idea of of magic ha- being something of a natural resource and then one that could be tapped out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One that could be tapped out, and then what does what does that mean when your society is like, oh, we've got we've got the one tree, and yeah. <laughs> and we have to like treat this as a sacred thing. Oh gosh, I feel like I read something recently that that operated somewhat along that that concept of like magic was a finite and failing resource. I love, and it. that's going to change your calculus about Absolutely. how people use it. Who gets to use it? What are the yeah. procedures for getting to use it? Things like that. Like, is yeah. it rationed? Uh, yeah. You can create all kinds of fascinating societal constructs around mm-hmm. those sorts of things. I mean, oh, yeah. I, I'm reminded of it's, uh, I think it's Julie Chernada's The Gossamer Maid, where oh, nice. magic will age you. So, like, yes. if, you know, you're basically, like, just, you know, taking away your own lifeline as you, as you do that. And if your magic concept for the world applies the same concept globally mm-hmm. then then it does become a thing of like ooh what are we you know anytime somebody's like I'm just trying to like light a fire it's like you could have just rubbed two sticks together and instead <laughs> instead you 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 slowed down you, you you speeded up the destruction of the earth just this little tiny bit more and then but then the idea of this is what we need and this is you know, is the cost not as visible to us right now? And then when when your characters, the people in your world start to become more aware of that mm-hmm. cost, like, that's where it gets interesting. And it's yeah. sort of the same thing. It's like, at the, in the moment, nobody's thinking about, like, oh, we'll, you know, we'll just keep using magic because, like, it's, it's infinite. It goes on forever. We'll, you know, keep dumping these chemicals in this lake what's the worst that could happen (laughs) (laughs) it's gonna be totally fine it's gonna be totally fine yeah totally fine what kind of a monstrous character would do that yeah I, I, I grew up in the town that literally has the most polluted lake in the in North America it's Onondaga Lake in in outside of Syracuse that that it's because Sad. some chemical companies just like, oh, there's where we can put all of our runoff. And <laughs> Jesus, that sucks. Yeah. And so it, it is infamous as the most polluted lake wow. in, in the in North America. And like the second most polluted lake in the world. <laughs> wow. Wow. Aren't you proud? I'm so proud. <laughs> put that I on, mean, on the, the license plate. Uh. <laughs> That's funny though. Not funny, interesting. Not not that's horrifying. <laughs> but one of the things I think it, that I think you need to be careful about when, when you're thinking about like solar farm concepts and trying to embed this in your work is, is we know that so many of us and and you know society in general we don't think about those kind of long term consequences, right? Like, like we don't we don't really think of oh this is a crisis until it's literally right in front of us, and that's part of our unfortunately where our brains are programmed, right? And so I think one of the things like we had, we had discussed ahead of time was like when does it start to become unrealistic um, and I think that th- you have a danger of um, like if, if you know your society is too long term thinking or like I think you actually do run the risk of it seeming a little unrealistic it's like if it's all you know humans and everybody is you know um, conscious of oh you know in 200 years we got to be careful of this and nobody is you know making those mistakes or no and I, that I think can seem a little too I don't. Not, utopian is not the right word for it, but but a, a little too. 
there's a better word for it that I'm not thinking of, but maybe it is utopian. Pollyanna-ish? <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah, very Pollyanna-ish. All humans are going to act perfectly and make the best choices every single time. You know? Yeah, yeah like, like that never happens. Um, so then, yeah, so that, that's where I think we can get, can get really unrealistic. Yeah, and it's 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 also a place where I think you might end up robbing yourself of potential plot hooks and interesting societal you know tangles that mm-hmm. your characters have to work around. Um, if everyone is on board with everything all the time. It, it reduces mm-hmm. the 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 amount of conflict, and in some stories that might be fine. You know, in in a cozy fantasy, you might not need the geopolitical conflict mm-hmm. <laughs> around mm-hmm. our our cultivation of our magical resources or whatever. But in a lot of kinds of stories, that's where you can get some really good juice. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking even like even in in one of the you know most classic post-scarcity universes in Star Trek, mm-hmm. they still create conflict with you know introducing other cultures that aren't on board with that yet or planets where they don't have that tech yet and, and mm-hmm. things like that to introduce those those levels of um, levels of interestingness to the mm-hmm. consideration mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah because if it was just yeah it was just like federation people walking around all the time with with the the hand wavy solutions to their problems and yeah you, you lose some of that intrigue for sure i was thinking about that earlier too when you were talking about the solution to the problem mm-hmm. and how in star trek it is kind of hand-waved how they got to a post-scarcity place. It's like, uh, replicator technology. <laughs> yeah. Done. There it is. We did it. <laughs> yeah. Pro- yeah, yeah. All problems solved forever. It's like, that's a little easy. I mean, I love it, but it's a little easy. Very Well, easy. but even even there, then they show there is still resource limitation in, you know, in that technology. And... I'm thinking of there's at one point in Deep Space Nine where in helping Bajor to rebuild, they have brought a handful of industrial-sized replicators. Mm-hmm. To, That's true, but they only had then, a couple of them, yeah. yeah. But they only had a couple, and then... The provinces be, are fighting over who gets them. Yeah. Who yeah. gets them, and then therefore it's a fascinating thing of limiting the resource of unlimited resources. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And then that is kind of the whole concept of Voyager, especially in the early seasons, is... Like, they're, like, almost literally this sort of magical ship that can do nearly anything in this region that's just... None of them have anything close to Voyager's technology, and so therefore... They almost become, like, legendary within that region of, like, this is the magic ship that can do anything, and thus becomes a target because they are perceived as being this source of infinite resource. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's your source of conflict right there, right? Like, like <laughs> as you're going through on that journey. It was funny you mentioned Deep Space Nine. Like I'm doing a rewatch of it right now, and I just got to the point where, as, as one does, um, and, and I just got to the point where um, where Bajor is supposed to join the Federation, and then they decide, now we're going to hold off. And it was season five, like partway through. Um, and one of the things that, one of the, the topics that comes up is like, you know, I, I forget the major tier, and, and somebody else are, are talking about Bajor joining the Federation. It's this idea of like, we, we we know that you know theoretically um, we have what we need to rebuild. You know, like we'll get like it's going to take time. We're gonna, you know, we don't have everything we need right away. But it's the it's not the question of can we we rebuild. It's how do we want to rebuild? Do we want to do it with all this federation involvement, or do we want to do it ourselves? Um, and and it's that ideological uh, again, this ideological choice of of how they want to approach like like in their case. Um, like post dystopia or post occupation um, world, um, and that and that idea. And I mean, what I find fat, like particularly fascinating in that show is that ideology of what's the future of our world feeds 
every major decision that comes up in that show for them. And so ideology, yeah, like has to be central, I think, to like the choices that are being made in terms of technology and advancement and, and what have you. Especially with that, the, the, the way also religion is woven mm-hmm. into, into the world there. And on top of that, you've got, I've talked about this before, and w- one of my favorite factors in that is the fact that Ben Sisko's job is to like get them into the Federation. And yep. he literally has the word of God in his back pocket <laughs> the yep. whole time where he can just see like, he could just say, you're going to do this. And as the emissary of the prophets, and they'd be like, okay, but he knows that that is, <laughs> that is the <laughs> inappropriate way Not to do the that. the most ethical choice. <laughs> <laughs> but he knows he has, he has that. So I, I love also that use of, here is this authority that he can always claim, which would make his life so much easier mm-hmm. so in so many ways, but knows I shouldn't do this. And so, I mean, I think that that goes back to, I think, some of the core things we're talking about in terms of pop punk and climate fiction. And so is, do you have this thing that you could just flip this switch and things would be so much easier, but you know the consequences of flipping that switch. Mm-hmm somewhere else for someone else is actually worse yeah absolutely you, know, you gotta have there has to be some sort of consequence um built in for sure and like that question of you know like i i, I can make this decision and, and influence you know um influence these people through religion or or what have you or you know the the political aspect of like the federation of major like those sorts of concepts you can have those without any sort of um hope punk Aesthetic or any sort of hand wavium or, or whatever, which kind of which like which kind of, kind of brings us back to this idea that kind of the concepts we were starting we were talking about at the start are very much aesthetic, not necessarily uh, not necessarily plot or like or like it, 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 here's there's the backdrop of the world and the problems are going to be and, and the uh, conflicts are going to be familiar stuff that we see in all over the place. So when we think about making that choice for ourselves as as writers, what do we think are the reasons that that we choose? The hopeful world that we choose the place where whether it's individual characters or a whole society have made these collective decisions that we're going to operate this way rather than perhaps the more familiar industrialized you know um rapacious resource consuming way what do we enjoy about creating those kinds of stories especially in contrast to the, the grim dark and the dystopian and the things that have been very popular over the last few decades <laughs> and that often sort of get get held up as more realistic you know oh it's so unflinching they're not they're not they're not turning away from the ugly bits of reality and it's like I'm not sure that's exactly they're, they're showing the, the blood difference. and the viscera and the, <laughs> <laughs> the grittiness is baked in the grittiness yeah. of the disembowelments and <laughs> they filmed everything with no lighting at all yeah, that's what we need. We need that's the Dogma you know 95 of fantasy. Oh, God. <laughs> so little light. Oh, my God. So what What? What? What makes us want to do the other thing? Besides that we've been living in the worst timeline? Yeah. Can we eat a like, way out? Yeah. Basically, yeah. Like, like that, 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 that's the knee-jerk response all the time for me. It's just like, I, I, need to see, I need to see a world where it's not... Where it's not insert climate disaster here, but uh, but no, but it, it, if I can get slightly more philosophical about it, I've, I've had this conversation with other um, uh, climate fiction or solar punk authors before. Like I, I kind of shy away from this idea that 
writers, um, especially sci-fi and fantasy writers, that, that we help to shape the future and that sort of stuff. Because I, I think that that's too big. Like, that's... But... Um, but I do, I do genuinely think that the the ideas that we present help to help to influence the way people feel and and, and the way people think. And, and and Star Trek is a great example of this. And, and how many people got into you know aerospace and and yeah. um, astrophysics and right because of Star Trek, and especially like people of color and, and so they get, like getting into that. Um, and I mean, for, like for me as a reader, if all I'm reading all the time is, is grim, dark, and post apocalyptic and stuff, like that's just going to feed this this idea that you know that, that that's eventually what we're going to end up in and you know then that's all it's going to be but so I, so to me i think it behooves us if i can use a very fancy word like behooves um to present even like, even just from an aesthetic standpoint to present these more optimistic worlds and these more hopeful worlds and and you know these worlds with sustainable tech and and, and so forth um, and different choices that are made just even just like either to give somebody a break when they're reading or to, to kind of put in the back of their heads that hey maybe that's actually possible even if even if like the thing that is in the world is something fantastic like dragons like it's at least you know you put in the back of their heads and then you know the next time they're presented with this sort of situation in the real world where the choice is either screw it we're toast i'm not gonna think about it anymore or maybe we actually got a chance hopefully they go towards the latter so that's that. That's been like that's like these days. Most of what I write, um, whether it's short fiction or, or or novels or even the games writing I've been doing, I try to inject it a little bit in there where I can, um, because because I, I think it needs to be there as often as possible. Um, and I'm in a position where I, I I still have enough optimism that I I can feed that. And I know not everybody does. And I and I like you know for anybody listening who's like he's telling me to write only optimistic stuff. I'm not saying that. Um, but but I, if I can inject it in there, I, I feel like uh, feel like I should. Is it something I like doing? even from a historical context, is mm. what if people made just slightly better choices? Like, mm-hmm. it's not going to change the entire world. It's not going to change the entire paradigm of this world in a snap instant. It's not going to create an automatic utopia. But what if people made just slightly better choices? <laughs> Could mm-hmm. we get closer to a better world faster? Could the world have changed? Could, could, it have, could enough people making small choices in a different way have steered us on a different path at some point in our history. Mm-hmm. And then I think if you're writing, you know, futuristic space fantasy, so have, um, you know, science fantasy, things like that, could could we still turn our own train around, <laughs> as it were, and yeah. and put it on maglev instead of coal? Um, <laughs> is it is it not too late for us if we made just maybe even just slightly better choices, each of us and collectively? Is there still time to change the path of our, you know, the trajectory we're currently on? I think that's, yeah, like you said, it's an important thing to, to think about and to at least suggest and to at least have that in the soup of people's brains rather than mm-hmm. just the the more pessimistic outlook. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of how, some of my favorite things over the course of time have been those works that show people making those you know those small sacrifices those small changes those small acts of kindness that hopefully will ripple out i mean i was an enormous fan of the original quantum leap when it when it was Mm. was airing which is entirely about a guy you know traveling through time and you know and putting right what once went wrong all of that is 
is very micro scale. Like he's, you know, he's not, you know, killing Hitler. He's not making sweeping changes. He's, you know, helping one person out of a bad situation. And then he's like saving one person's life and little, little things like that. But the idea that in the final episode, he's like, you know, I've helped a few people. And it's like, no, you've, you've touched these lives. And then those lives touch other lives. And that it is this ripple effect that hopefully can make a better world. Or even even if you're leaning dystopian, you can play with characters choosing choosing those those better those slightly better choices within that context. Um, again, I think of I think of the end of uh, Angel, where it's you know you know we are going to lose this fight against evil in the long run, yeah. but for today we can we can just yeah. throw a wrench in the gears and stop those gears for a minute. And you know what? That's 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 gonna be victory enough. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That makes me think of it's slightly different approach to it. Either of you read um, uh, Kelly Robson's uh, God Monster, God's Monsters in the Lucky Beach? Ooh, no, not yet. F- fabulous novella, um, and it, it it's uh, kind of combines climate fiction with time travel, um, but in a different sort of ways. So in, in the it, the uh, main narrative starts. They're, I want to say a couple of hundred years in the future from us and, and like post climate disaster but but they're starting they're, they're, they're starting to rebuild and, and, and redevelop and one of the ways in which they're doing that is they, they've developed time travel and what they use it for is to go way back to I want to say Mesopotamia sort of era uh, to go back and and study study terrain um, you know like like back like they're, they're at the Euphrates River and it's like we're gonna you know which doesn't exist anymore we're gonna study it, it here and and you know take that understanding back with us so we can remediate our climate and kind of take those those lessons from the past so it's so it's it's less about we're gonna go back like we can't go back and fix anything back there but we can we can bring stuff back here in order to kind of keep our you know make our our future a little more optimistic you know by kind of looking back and and kind of pulling that stuff from history because we can actually go in and visit it um, in a way that i think like is, is a, approached very i think in a really really cool way um, and and with a ton of like emphasis on bureaucracy and <laughs> bureaucracy sometimes doesn't work it's hilarious for that at the same time but uh wesley Chu's time salvager plays with some similar ideas yes that. yeah same idea and there was there was a movie called millennium not a great movie with uh with chris christopherson and uh cheryl cheryl teagues i want to say cheryl teagues where it's like in this dystopian you know everything has fallen apart future they have time travel and because like even for all of them like their bodies are just so broken down by like the environmental disaster that they've created like Mm -hmm. they can't even have healthy children anymore and so okay so what they do is they travel back in time and basically kidnap people who are going to die. Like, oh man, like I had a feeling this is where you were going. I don't know how I've ever seen this movie. But like the main thing they do is is like they will like replace the they will take the people who would have died in a plane crash and like, you know, replace them with fake bodies. So then therefore to do whatever they can to leave no imprint on the timeline. And then, yeah, yeah. and then the idea was that the, they would then send these people far into the future when hopefully everything's Earth has cleaned itself up again, and then and build, you know, let them build a new future. That is very sinister. Yeah, it's 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 a weird that's, movie. 
Yeah. There's some ethical considerations oh, there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, which is is not mm. which the movie does not gloss over. I will I will say that's that. Good. That's yeah. good. That's good. It isn't just like that. The, the idea is like, oh, you know, who asked you to go back and kidnap you and their, yeah, exactly. their justification uh, is they were gonna die anyway, so we have saved Cool them. motive, still kidnapping. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're still kidnapping people just through time rather than space, yeah. and I'm not sure that's better. Nope, probably not. That's, probably I, not. I, concerns. I want to see, like, I wanna, where's the, I want to the whole punk spin on that. What's the whole punk spin on the plot of Millennium? <laughs> oh, <gosh>. <laughs> Rhetorical question. <laughs> I mean, there, there was, oh, that does actually remind me of another... The show called what was it called? And I'm now blanking on the title of it. But it was again, you know, environmental disaster future, where they <clears throat> again have this form of time travel. But this time travel sends people, like you can send somebody's consciousness into somebody else's body in the past. Is that uh, travelers? Yes, travelers. That was it. And but, like they would specifically be sending it to somebody who was about to die. So it's like. Yes, we've murdered them, but they were they were literally about to die right now anyway. Wow. So, <laughs> so again, there is that sort of like ethical question of like, you know, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. But again, they're like, trying to, and, and again, it gets into that sort of thorny ethics of like now you're pretending to be this other person and using that to like do your secret missions to to yeah. <laughs> to hopefully save the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, it, it was. It was an interesting show. I, I enjoyed it when when I when I watched it. So, <laughs> but again, it's this sort of th- it does like what is it? All these things that we've been talking about sort of raises up the question: like, what is hopefulness in the light of like, you know, what are you willing to do? Wacky. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Of like, like you know, if you're in this scenario where you know. Either, you know, we've tried, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever, and, and none of, like, you know, none of these plans have worked, but we have this tech that we can use to go back and, and do X that, yeah, that is, you know, there's all these ethical concerns, but we're kind of out of ideas here. Like, and, you know, and, and you know, and, and we're, you know, ticking clock in terms of, you know, our own survival and, and what have you. Um, yeah, that's a, really, that's a really interesting question. Like, um, where does that, like, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few? Yeah. Like, we are, we are... Well, kidnapping these people who are going to die or, or, or taking over the bodies of these people who are going to die anyway so they're not like losing anything that they would have had yeah but it <sighs> speaks to something so fascinating about like how you conceive of time yeah. even and like privilege, yeah. privileging your now over what you consider the past but like once you go back there and do something like that's there now <laughs> and oh that's just oh that's really yeah. just oh that's fascinating. Oh, man. Is it an ethical concern of, like, these, you know, as far as from your point of view, this was just history. Like, this is already done. So. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, like, what would you say if, you know, you're, like, you're, you're enacting this plan and then somebody shows up in your backyard from 200 years in what, in your future and it's like, okay, you know, you thought you had, it, we have the better idea and now we need to do X to you. You're probably going to be like, well, what wait, what? <laughs> 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 I wrote this very silly short play where a person was like building a thing in his, in their garage to like make like a better power source or what have you. And while they're doing that, this time traveler shows up 
just be like, and he's like, what are you doing? It's like, oh, I'm here to see the great disaster. <laughs> oh, no. But then it turns out that the disaster was caused by the time traveler <laughs> going back there. Of anyway, course. So oh, I like that. But yeah, the, the idea of what is ethical in terms of one small cost towards the much greater good. Like it is, it's sort of like almost mm-hmm, the inverse mm-hmm. of cost of magic stuff. Yeah, or or if you apply that to, you know, like, let's say you've got you know some sort of world where you know your resource management needs to be really tight and and you know for sustainability reasons or, or resource scarcity or whatever and and you know so you're you like say the the rules that or the the rules of the jobs that people have so like, okay we need X number of people to work this we need X number of people to work this and, and maintain this tech or whatever and this is what you're going to do it's almost like the Fallout video games like here's your you know you here's what your your job is going to be if you embed that into a world that is, you know, that is ostensibly what could be considered a, like a serious ethical concern, does that take away too much of the hopeful? Does it become a little bit too dystopic? Yeah. Or is it just a matter of perspective, right? That's an interesting question. And that may even sort of get us around to, to another good consideration. What do we think when, when we are looking at it from a world-building perspective, when we are creating this world that is solar punk, for whatever reason, what are some of the key elements? What are the things that you have to make other choices about in order to build a world that you would consider solar punk? Mm-hmm. How much of it is technological? How much of it is societal? How much of it is religion is, is the other things mm-hmm. that can craft your character's worldview? What are some of the key things that you think about when putting that together? I mean, like the ideas that I've approached in the past... Um, it usually starts with the technological. It's usually some sort of like some sort of idea, like either technological or in the case of fantasy, um, magical or, 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 or mystical in some cases. Um, and you know, something like you know, what if I what if you know I had a a, a construct, you know, powered by um, like magic sigils that are solar powered as opposed to arcane, like, like just something like that. And so, so for me, it typically starts with the technological, but I think the, then I have to kind of almost work backwards and be like, okay, what about the um, society that the story takes place in has led to the development of that technology, right? Like, is that like, um, so to me, I think wherever you start doesn't matter, but I think, I think you have to come bring yourself back at some point to the question of society. I think that's going to be your core and then that's going to branch out um, to everything else. Or at least that, that's what my process has been um, through a lot of stuff that I've worked on. I like that. I, I, I often say that one of my favorite things about world building is deciding how a people forms a society. Mm-hmm. What choices do they make in creating a society? Because mm-hmm. that touches so many other things. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think a solar punk world does give you so many of those smaller choices to make to thread together into whatever the bigger, um, the bigger paradigm is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. I think the the other, like because because technology is um, tends to lean very very science fictiony. But if you look at it from kind of the more fantastic standpoint, like if you, if you the starting point, I think can also be um, what's the kind of what's the fantastic element that has a very environmental or, or solar punky sort of feel and, and, and one of the more recent examples that, that comes to mind for me is this book um, After the Dragons by um, Cynthia Zhang it's a, a Stellaform Press book that came out like last year and is 
ostensibly and very very deliberately climate fiction, but set in a world where you know dragons are real, um, but they're like the size of iguanas or something. Um, and it centers on these characters, like or it centers on these couple of characters who are trying to almost like treat like stray dragons the way you treat rescue dogs, and it's like in a world that is. You know, kind of like, like uh, maybe a few years distant from us, but has gone in the wrong direction in terms of like pollution and effects of climate change and stuff, which has had an even more dramatic effect on, you know, dragon wildlife than it has on on humanity. Um, and right, it's, uh, yeah, it's a sort of tragic sort of element to it, but is still incredibly optimistic in terms of how people are like, no, no, we can we can still kind of figure this out and 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 support these creatures because it's not their fault that we screwed up the planet. And so that like the 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 core kind of what if idea. In there is, you know, what if you had like house hippo style dragons in a world dealing with a climate catastrophe? Um, and so it's not a technological aspect, it's kind of a fantastical aspect tied to these kind of climate fiction, solar punky sort of aesthetics. So that does also make me think in terms of fantasy, especially fantasy dragons, they themselves are their own kind of like climate disaster if you, if you think them through. Like, yeah. you know, what is sustaining these giant fire-breathing lizards in a way that they can, you know, mm-hmm. even if you have only, like, ten dragons in your in your Air Force, like, what's... How are you feeding them every day, and where is that coming from, and what is the cost of that? Yeah. And I think everyone wants dragons because dragons are cool, but I think not enough stuff thinks yeah. about the logistics of what actually having dragons like that would necessarily do, and do to the environment in your fantasy world. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, there's this anthology that came out sometime in the last, we'll say, four years. I think it's Book of Dragons. It's on my shelf in my office right now. Um, it's one of Jonathan Strawn's anthologies, um, and, and it's all like like dragon stories and whatnot. And I think there's one story in there that addresses the idea of like, you know, that like a dragon swooping over this town periodically is really not great. Like, <laughs> kicks up a bunch of wind and a bunch of dirt and like, like, like this is not a pleasant experience. But but yeah, but like and I think like the stories in there are wonderful. But but Marshall, you're right that like a lot of them yeah don't address that sort of idea of of um, the the consequences of just the existence of a dragon. We need fifty pigs a day just to feed the dragon. <laughs> yeah, where, yeah. Where are you getting these pigs from? It's like it's like it was, um, how to train your dragon. It's like how do you even have sheep anymore? You you tell us in the first five minutes they're eating all the sheep. I see sheep right there, man. <laughs> Well, I think we're coming up on the end of our hour, and as is is our okay. is our tradition, whenever we have a guest on here, we invite you to add a little bit of world building trivia to the world that we have been building on air over the course of the four years of doing this show. So, we th- this world is you know wide and complex, but we we invite you to add a new bit of complexity to some part of the world. Perfect. Um, any any limitations? Any provisos? Any, uh, the main thing: the world is relatively like age of sale and like un- almost universally so. And there's all sorts of different magic all over the course of the world. And then the main thing is there's the magical nude gate, which are these, <laughs> which makes cast laugh every single time. Every single time. <laughs> which are... It tickles me. Which is basically become sort of the linchpin of the whole world in that there are all these gates that, you know, from one part of the world to the other that people can go through that... But you can only send, like, animals through that. So you go through that, you, you know, you can't 
you emerge nude on the other side because nothing you know none of your clothes or anything can can come can come with you so right, unless right. you're bold enough to wear a, like a living squirrel but like living squirrel suit <laughs> do not recommend <laughs> but <laughs> but that because there is then all this interconnectivity which increases communication and ability to transport and interact with other cultures but in a way that almost prevents it from being colonialist or invasive that at least directly so that you know in some way we we've created a a a world that's lower on the asshole scale than the (laughs) than average (laughs) but you know but still i like that that's, yeah, our, that's, that's our, our optimism, optimism that. that we put into this world. Is I love it. Fewer <laughs> asshole cultures. Perfect. Lower on the ass biscuit. Okay, what do I, um, what do, I want to inject? How about um, that somewhere in this world, um, and doesn't necessarily, not necessarily um, uh, native plant life all over the place could, could be in a specific spot, um, you have this sort of like vine... Um, very similar to like a pothos, like this kind of creeping vine sort of plant um, that is dark blue during the day, but absorbs significant amount of sunlight. And then at night, it becomes kind of uh, phosphorescent. So it can be used for, for light in the evening. Um, that is 100% um, green energy uh, sort of source of illumination. How about that? I love that so much. I love it. That sounds really pretty. <laughs> I also, I, I like pretty like world building, and I like, I like the idea of having like people having just these vines, sort of like, you know, you snake them through your home or snake them along the streets, and yeah. and therefore, and therefore give people light. I love it. It's beautiful. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Brandon. This has been a super fun conversation, and. Lots of lots of great food for thought, I think. Yeah. No, that is. There's a better metaphor there. There's a better like. No, I went for the two easy words. What's a what's a better like solar punky way to say that? Like. I mean, there has to be. A lot of light to shine on this. Whoa! Hey, there, we there we go. It's Ooh. almost like we're professional writer people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. No, I, this is a blast. I, um, I'm honored uh, to be here because this podcast is excellent, and I love listening to it for myself and, and, and my own work as a writer. So uh, no, it, it was very, very cool uh, to be here chatting with you both. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on October 26th, where Mary Robinette Kowal joins us to talk about world building by aesthetic. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. 
We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.